Good morning, everyone. Great to be together, isn't it? Yes, hello, Asha. Now, we're up to the Psalms. We're working through the Old Testament and uh, looking for Jesus in the, in the Old Testament. And uh, so far, as various ones have brought the messages to us, we've seen Jesus in the New Testament, whether it was Leviticus or whether it was Joshua or Judges or First Chronicles or wherever it might have been, we saw that as Jesus said to his followers, the law and the prophets and the Psalms, they speak of me. And we're certainly finding that out. Well, we're up to the Psalms and I don't think anybody needs convincing that the Psalms speak of Jesus. And certainly we want to see that today. But before we do, we're going to actually work through um, a few things that are important for us in terms of understanding what it means to read Hebrew poetry. Uh, Because we can really get off track if we don't get a handle on that. So we're going to move very quickly through the first part and then just focus in the end on Psalm 2. So first of all, we're going to look at some general information about the Psalms. Then we're going to talk about the genre of poetry then a little bit about Hebrew poetry in particular, and then Messianic Psalms, what they are, and then finally, as I said, focusing on Psalm 2. So first of all, some general information. We'll move through this very quickly um, because, and if you're a note taker, don't worry too much about it because um, in the mail out that should come out to you tomorrow, there will not only be discussion questions as we normally have for our gym groups, but there will also be another sheet which will capture most of what I'm saying in this sermon this morning. So you'll get all of that plus a little bit more in that handout that comes to you via email. So first of all, you probably know there are 150 Psalms and they were written over approximately 1,000 to 1,200 years. The earliest one is Psalm 90. It was written by Moses and it goes right through to Psalms were written um, following the return from exile. So basically the end of the Old Testament. So covering quite a period of time. And we need to understand that the Psalms were not just all all of a sudden all sort of put together and the Israelites had this hymn book that that they sang from. They were accumulated over a long period of time and were eventually put together into what is known as the Psalter or what we know as the Book of Psalms, which contained those 150 Psalms. Now, there are other Psalms in the Bible, of course, In fact, you can read uh, some of the Psalms that are actually in the book of Psalms in other places. Um, I think it's in Samuel, there's one of David's Psalms there as well, or part of it. There are seven different known authors, like Moses and David and Solomon and Asaph and so on. There are seven of those that are actually, we know, and the other Psalms are sometimes called the orphan Psalms. When I go to a book uh, bookshop, a Christian bookshop, I often, if I'm looking at a book, I pick it up, I look at the start, the front of it, I look at the contents usually, I have a look at the first little bit, get an idea of how the writer writes, and then I turn to the back and I have a look at the end of it. I don't know if other people do that, but that's one of the things that I sort of like to do to get a bit of an idea of what the book's about. Well, if you look at the book of Psalms, the very first word is blessed. Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed. You go to the end of Psalm 150 and you find this expression, praise the Lord. And that gives you a bit of an idea of what the Psalms are all about. Of course, it's not all praise and hallelujah, because that's what praise the Lord means. As Steve already mentioned, 
there are all sorts of emotions expressed in the Psalms. But it gives you an idea. Blessed is one bookend. The other bookend is hallelujah or praise the Lord. Now, if you're reading through the Psalms and you get to the end of Psalm 41 and you go on to read Psalm 42, you'll notice a little annotation there that says book two. And so the Psalms are actually divided up into five books. And when they were composed, when they were put together, when the, the Psalms were accumulated and put together, they were put, settled into five different books. And you'll see that little annotation um, at the end of Psalm 41, at the end of Psalm 72, etc. And those books are generally thought to parallel the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And there are various ways that scholars show how that lines up. At the end of each of those books, there's a little doxology, which ends with the first one, Amen and Amen. Next one, Amen and Amen, Amen and Amen, and then Amen, praise the Lord. And the final one ends with praise the Lord. So there's a fitting little doxology at the end of each of those books. And that's how we distinguish, and of course, the annotation in your Bible as well. Now, let's talk a little bit about genre. This is really important. We need to recognise that there is a difference between poetry and prose or narrative. You don't read poetry the way you read history or narrative. Now, this is a poem here that I particularly like and remember because when I was in my senior year at high school, we studied a poet by the name of William Blake. It probably wouldn't happen in state schools today because he was a Christian poet and most of his poems actually express his faith. You'll see it in this one. I'll just uh, go through. Notice the way tiger was spelt way back in 1794. T-Y-G-E-R. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? And so it goes on a number of stanzas. We recognise that as poetry, even though it was written in the seven, late 1700s. There's something about it that tells us that is poetry. We don't read it literally. We don't expect to see a tiger on fire when he says, tiger, tiger, burning bright. We know that that doesn't mean the tiger's on fire. We know that that's expressing something of the colour and it flashes through the moonlit forest. He's got, he gets this expression, this idea, trying to get this picture across to us of this tiger. And so it goes on. Let's come a hundred years later, approximately a century later, to a well-known poem uh, by most Australians anyway, My Country by Dorothea McKellar. Uh, 1904 she wrote that. You can still see the poetry there. This is the second stanza of that very famous poem. I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains. Sorry, you Kiwis, but you, know, you understand, I'm sure. Of ragged mountain ranges, of drought and flooding rain. And this poem has sort of somehow embedded itself in Aussie culture and it's often trotted out and, and quoted. It's poetry. But let's come another hundred years. See, poetry evolves. This too is poetry. You look at that and you recognise immediately that that is poetry. It doesn't rhyme. There are no rhyming words in there. And this lady, she just had a new baby and she wrote this poem as she watched in awe at her beautiful little baby sleeping. They don't sleep all the time, I know. But you sleep so fiercely, your little brow furled, your little mouth puckered, your pale fist drawn up to either side. And so it goes on. She's expressing a lot of imagery in there, a lot of pictures to try and capture what it's like. 
to watch a little baby, a tiny little baby growing up in all their innocence, growing up just milk, sleep, maybe a bit of crying in between. But that's what she sees as he writes. That's poetry. It's evolving over the centuries. Well, let's go back to the tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night. That's poetry. We recognise it as poetry. Well, we need to understand that in Scripture we have various genres. Poetry is one of them. And we don't read the Psalms the way we read Deuteronomy. We don't read the Psalms the way we read even the book of Esther. We don't read Psalms the way we read Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That's another genre. We don't, certainly don't read it the way we read uh, the apocalyptic writings in, say, Revelation or Daniel or, or Ezekiel or somewhere like that. But the Psalms is poetry. Now, it's not the only poetry in the Bible. As I mentioned, you'll find poetry in various places throughout the Bible, right from the beginning, almost the beginning, right through to the end. One way of, of seeing the distinction if you go back to the book of Judges and you read Judges chapter 4, you'll read the narrative, the account, historical narrative of the battle between Deborah and Barak and uh, Cicero, the, uh, the, the commander of the army of Canaan. And you find the narrative there in chapter 4 of Judges. Then you come to chapter 5 and you find the poetic account of that the song of Deborah and Barak. And so you get the same experience, the same battle in narrative in chapter 4 of Judges. Chapter 5, you get it in poetic form. And it's very interesting to read the two, one after the other. It gives you a really good grasp of the difference between narrative and poetry. You'll see all the, the elements of poetry that we're going to talk about just in just a moment. One of the things that is typical in all sorts of poetry is the use of figures of speech. doesn't matter whether it's English poet, poetry from 1794 or whether it's uh, Hebrew poetry from much earlier. And I'll just go through some of these quickly. Now, as I mentioned, these are actually in the handout that will come to you on Monday. Personification is used. These are some examples from the Psalms. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together. We all know that rivers don't have hands to clap. We all know that hills don't have a voice to sing. But the psalmist here is trying to get a message across, a message of joy. That's what comes across. The rivers are clapping their hands. The hills are singing for joy. That's personification. And so the rivers and the hills are given the qualities of a human. That's personification. Then we've got metaphor. Metaphor is used a lot. So here's one. Who is a rock except our God? Psalm 18.31. And over and over again through the Psalms, you will find that God is referred to as a rock. He's a rock. <clears throat> doesn't say he's like a rock. It says he is a rock. That's metaphor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Here's simile. Somewhat different. Always in simile, you get the word, <clears throat> you get the word like or as. So it doesn't say my feet are the feet of a deer. It says my feet are like the feet of a deer. So that word like is always used in that simile. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next one is imagery. 
in imagery, the poet <coughs> is trying to paint a picture, trying to give you an image, trying to give you an idea of something. And so they create this image, this picture for us. Now here's a picture of God, our Father. It says, He's a father of the fatherless and protector of widows in his God in his holy habitation. That's God. That's a picture of God. And the psalmist is trying to, to help us to understand what God is like. And so he paints this picture of him as a father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's what God is like. And then allegory. There are others, but these are some of the main ones. Allegory is, is something like... Um, the lion, the witch, and the, and the wardrobe is an allegory. Um, so off, more often than not, it's a story. But here we've got a verse, Psalm 141, verse 3, where, where the allegory is that there is a guard standing outside a cavern stopping things from coming out. And so the psalmist says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So he's using this imagery, or, or this allegory, sorry, to try and express an idea and to get it across. So they're just some of the parts of speech or the figures of speech that we have that are common in poetry. doesn't matter what sort of poetry it is. Well, Hebrew poetry. Let's, let's focus now on Hebrew poetry. One of the really important characteristics to realize in Hebrew poetry is the use of parallelism. And we'll actually open our Bibles at Psalm 34 to look at some examples of this. Psalm 34... And I'd like you just to follow through a couple of verses in this psalm that show us what um, parallelism looks like, the different types of parallelism that we have in Hebrew poetry. <clears throat> the first one is synonymous parallelism. Now, we probably all know what a synonym is. It's another word that means the same as something else. Right? So um, we've got this idea of synonymous parallelism. And what it's saying is that the poet writes something, gives an idea, and then he says the same thing again, but in different words. And the whole idea of parallelism is for emphasis. So the, the author, the poet, the composer is trying to get the message really sinking into our heads, wanting to emphasize it. So he uses parallelism. Synonymous parallelism here is found in the first verse of Psalm 34. <clears throat> I will bless the Lord at all times. So there's his big statement. I will bless the Lord at all times. Then he says it again. The same thing, but in different words. He says now, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now that means exactly the same thing. You might say, oh, that's superfluous. Why would he need to say it again? He could have cut this psalm down to half the size. But no, it's an important strategy. It's important use of parallelism, synonymous parallelism, saying something, I want you to really get this, folk, when you sing this song, because that's what they are, they're songs, when you sing this, I want you to really get this, I will bless the Lord at all times. You get that? Because listen, listen again, I'll say it again, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's synonymous parallelism. The next one is antithetical parallelism. You might get the idea from the word antithetical, that it might be the opposite. You're right. And we'll have a look at an example of that in this same psalm. Have a look in Psalm 34, verse 10. So here he makes a statement, and then he says something the opposite. And again, it's to emphasize it. In verse 10, he says, 
the young lions want and hunger. Now, something opposite. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So there's an example of antithetical parallelism. Makes a statement, a positive statement, or negative statement in this case, and then a positive statement to oppose it. So it's for emphasis. The next one is synthetic parallelism. Remember, these are all going to be in your notes that come out with an explanation and the example there for you. Synthetic parallelism we'll find in verse 17, still in this psalm. Synthetic parallelism makes a statement and then says something else in the next line to build on it. Not to oppose it, not to say the same thing again, but to actually build on it. That's synthetic parallelism. And so in verse 17, he says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears, that's his statement, then he builds on that and says, and delivers them out of all their troubles. So he's building on the idea of the Lord hearing, but he actually does something about it. He actually delivers them out of all their, their problems, or out of all their troubles. One more parallelism which we're not going to talk about is chiasmic, chiasmic parallelism. It's a little bit complicated. There's no example of it in Psalm 34, as best I can tell. And so if you're interested in pursuing it, um, there'll be a link in the handout that comes to you on Monday, which will give you an article that you can have a look at what that's all about. Uh, it's used quite a bit through the Psalms and other parts of Scripture. The other thing I want to talk about a little bit with Hebrew poetry is the alphabet psalms. Some of the psalms actually are acrostic psalms, and Psalm 34 is actually one of them. Um, notice that there are 22 verses in Psalm 34, and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so each of these verses that we have in our Bible actually start with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, follows it through. There is a little bit of a twist in this one, but there are other psalms as well. The most, the most famous acrostic psalm is Psalm 119. If you have a look in Psalm 119, every eight verses it has a little Hebrew word, or sometimes the Hebrew um, letter. And so when you're reading through psalms, the start of Psalm 119, before verse 1, it says Aleph. That's the first, Hebrew, first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then you've got eight verses. And then it says Bet, B-T-H, Bet. And it's got another eight verses, and then it's got Gimel, and then another eight verses, and so on for 22. Now, in Aleph, every line in that poem, the eight lines in that section, all start with the Hebrew letter Aleph. The next eight lines all start with the Hebrew letter Bet. The next eight lines start with the Hebrew letter Gimel, and so on, all the way through the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. I challenge you to write a poem in English like that. It'd be quite something, wouldn't it, to be able to write a poem with the 26 letters of the English alphabet and uh, have each line starting with the letter in that order. So it's quite an interesting characteristic of quite a lot of Hebrew poetry. I want to talk about the Messianic Psalms. You know, if we don't, if we don't see Jesus in the Psalms, they don't mean a lot to us. Steve mentioned to us how the various emotions that we go through are all expressed in Psalms. If we're sad, if we feel betrayed, if, we're, if, we've, if we've lost a loved one, if somebody's betrayed us, all those things are there. There are Psalms to express that. But if that's all we've got, it just, it just buries us deeper. The beauty of those Psalms is that they actually direct us to Christ. And there are many Psalms which are messianic, purely messianic. And I want to just explain that 
uh, like this. Obviously, Messianic Psalms talk about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. Now, in a narrow sense, we have Psalms that are purely prophetic of the Messiah. Now, Steve read one of those, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, he read a little expression there that says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, that wasn't David's experience. Crucifixion was not invented as a form of execution until about at least six or seven centuries after that. And so there's an expression that is purely prophetic, inspired by God to write about something that was true of the Messiah and not about anybody else. But then there's the broader sense, expressing the current experience of the, of the poet, but also being prophetic of an experience of Jesus. And I'll try and give you a couple of examples of that. In Psalm 41 and verse 9, we have this, written by David, when his, one of his best friends, his advisor and counsellor, actually turned against him and went and joined Absalom, his son, the, the, uh, the enemy, fighting against David. And so it, was, it hurt David very deeply. And he wrote this in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. We come right over to the New Testament in John 13 and verse 18. And Jesus says this. But the scripture will be fulfilled. The scripture we just read from Psalm 41. The scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus was talking about Judas, who was going to betray him. Just as David was betrayed by his close friend and counsellor, now Jesus is about to be betrayed by someone who ate bread at the table with him, who travelled with him, who listened to him, who stayed with him for so long, now he's going to turn his back on him, he's going to betray him. So there's an example of something that was true for the author of the psalm, but it was then also true for the Messiah later on. Well, I said we were going to come to Psalm 2 and spend the rest of our little bit of time here on Psalm 2. So let's turn back in your Bible to Psalm 2, please, and we'll read it together. And again, I'll be reading from the ESV, so you can either listen if you have a different version or follow along. Now, we know that this psalm, it doesn't say at the top, but we know from Acts 4 and 25 that this was a psalm of David, because it's quoted there as David's psalm. But let's read through the psalm. You'll notice as we're reading that it's in four stanzas, four sections of three verses each. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now the next stanza. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now the third stanza. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And now the final stanza. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now this is obviously a messianic psalm. And in fact, it's actually quoted or referenced seven times in the New Testament with direct reference to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Let's have a look at how the psalm's broken down. We're just looking for the big idea. Remember, in poetry, you don't sort of analyze every line. You actually get the big idea. Remember, we've got these different types of parallelism. And the whole idea is to give us big ideas. So in the first three verses, one to three, we've got mankind speaking in rebellion against Jehovah. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bands, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the world we live in today. That was what it was like back then. But that's the world we live in today. Have a look at this. You might have, some of you might have seen this. Here's these people, they're out marching. And this guy's got this placard up, if Jesus returns, kill him again. Got their website there, undojesus.org. He's got his logo on his shirt. The logo is throwing a cross, Jesus' cross, obviously, throwing it into the bin. That's where it belongs. This is all rubbish, they're saying. I had a look at their website. Here's a quote from their website. Marching with this sign is an act of love for Christians. It is wrong to let people believe the idiocy of a man claiming he is a God that created himself as an only son. And if you don't believe him, he'll send you to a non-existing afterlife where you'll burn for eternity, even though he claims to love you unconditionally. Now, that's off their website. That's the world we're living in. And you don't have to be marching with a sign that says, get rid of Jesus. You can be opposed to Jesus by simply not accepting him, by not obeying his word. You can be in that camp of the rebellious. Of course, we know that that's absolutely impossible. Paul tells us in Romans 6 and verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so their idea of killing Jesus again is an absolute impossibility. It's one of the things that God would be laughing about in our psalm. So mankind speaks in rebellion against Jehovah in the first few verses. But then there's a response from God in verses 4 to 6. And the big idea here, let's have a look at the big idea in verses 4 to 6. The big idea is that God just has a laugh about that. That is crazy. And it starts off by saying, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. There's some parallelism. There's, a, there's your synonymous parallelism. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, etc. He says, it's absolutely impossible. Look, in verse 6, as for me, says Jehovah, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's already got it all worked out. No puny man, no puny emperor or king can change God's plan. God's got it all settled. And then the next stanza, verses 7 to 9, we have the Son speaking, declaring the divine decree concerning himself. 
And we see here where he says, uh, the, the, the decree, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is the decree that comes from Jehovah to the son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that section is referenced in the book of Revelation when we read about God's judgment on the earth, on people who have rejected him. But I particularly want to come to the last stanza where we find the Spirit. I believe it is the Spirit, even though David wrote this psalm according to Acts 4. David wrote this psalm, but I believe it's the Spirit here who is actually imploring people to be reconciled. And so let's have a look at that in more detail. I'll put it up there for you a little larger. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I want to suggest to you that there are three big ideas in this last stanza. The first one, be warned. Be warned. The second one, be reconciled. Kiss the Son, be reconciled. And the third one, be safe. Take refuge in him. As we said, the world is still the same as it was when David described it in this psalm. It was the same in Jesus' day. They wanted to get rid of him, away with him, get rid of him. We'll not have this man to reign over us. That's the voice of the world today. And even though you might not take your, take your stand with a crowd on the street holding a placard, kill Jesus... If you don't accept him, you've taken your stand against him. You're either for him or against him. And no matter where you are today, listening to this, watching this, or whether you're here in this auditorium today, if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your saviour, you're still on the other side. You are still alienated from him. You are an enemy of God. But he loves you. And the call goes out. Be warned, there's judgment coming, but there's reconciliation available. Kiss the Son. Come and be reconciled. He wants to welcome you, and then you'll be safe. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Corrie ten Boom said this. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. And if you look to Christ, you'll be at rest. And that's the message here. The world has nothing to offer us. It's antagonistic to God. It's against Christians. You won't find anything out there. The world is a distressing place. You look within, what do you find? Dissatisfaction? turmoil, uncertainty, and it's so easy to get depressed. Look away to Jesus. Look to Christ. Look to the Son, the, the one that is called the Anointed, the King, the Son. Look to Him. And in faith, accept His offer of salvation and you'll be safe. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, 
it would, it would be great to have a whole year to work through the Psalms, I think. I don't know whether, what you think, but it would be great to have a whole year. But we've just got the one day, the one message to talk about the Psalms, to overview the Psalms. If, I don't care if you forget about the, the, the parallelism. and Yeah, I do, because you can't read the Psalms properly unless you understand that a bit. I don't, I don't care if you forget about all the names of all that stuff, all the jargon. But I do want you to remember this, that it's all about Jesus. The Psalms tell us about Jesus. Tell us that we can flee from the wrath to come. We can be reconciled to God and be secure, safe for eternity through faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, thank you everybody for coming today and uh, joining us for fellowship and uh, around the Word of God. Let's close in prayer and then we can um, move out as quickly as possible. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this book of Psalms, that you have seen fit to preserve it for us, how rich it is, rich in language, but rich in its depiction of the Messiah, the one whom we have come to know as Saviour. Thank you, Father, for the offer of, of salvation that is offered even in the Psalms. Thank you for the call to be reconciled. We would pray that anyone who's watching or listening today, whose heart has been stirred by the Spirit as we've read your word together, that they would respond and they would indeed come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus and find reconciliation and refuge. And for those of us that do know the Lord Jesus as Saviour, Oh, Father, thank you so much for assuring us again that, that you have already set your king on Zion. You have already settled everything and we're a part of your plan. We thank you for that as we offer our worship and our thanksgiving. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.